Hello, and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So, the Privileges Committee report has landed, and well, wow, the committee found that Boris Johnson deliberately misled the House of Commons and committed a series of further serious contempts, concluding that had he not already quit as an MP, he should have been suspended from Parliament for 90 days. So what happens next with this report? What does it say about Parliament and what next for the former Prime Minister? As one inquiry finally revealed its findings, another finally got underway. The COVID-19 inquiry is up and running, so where does it go from here? COVID has been blamed for the huge dip in hospital performance, but take a closer look at the stats and it's clear the problems were there long before the pandemic started. More staff and more money aren't turning the crisis around, so what's the problem? A new IFG report examines what's going on and poses the questions that politicians need to answer. So we've got a lot to get through today, and I have to say the quality of this podcast will be in no way affected by the fact the IFG had its summer party last night, or that the Privileges Committee roused us from our beds bright and early to read its report. I'm joined by a formidable duo, bright-eyed and bursting with energy, Emma Norris and Kath Haddon. Hi both. Hiya. Hi Hannah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, did that, should we do that well, again? We sound sufficiently energetic there. No, it's fine. I think people get the picture. Yeah. And I'm delighted too to be joined by Sam Friedman, IFG's senior fellow, former government advisor and co-author of our new NHS report. Hi, Sam. Hello. Sam sounds slightly more with it. <laughs> I left the party a bit earlier, I suspect. <laughs> Let's start with the Privileges Committee report, which dropped this morning. More than 30,000 words long, but with a very clear message. Kath, can you give us, to start with, a historical take? Have mm. we ever seen anything like this before? No. Uh, <laughs> That's a simple answer. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, like, years ago, I kept sort of getting upset about everyone trying to ask if something was unprecedented, but then after a while, it was just like, yeah, it's all unprecedented. No, look, um, we have obviously seen a very major case of an MP Minister for War resigning, John Profumo, um, and admitting that he misled the House, but obviously... There wasn't the same uh, inquiry that went on to it, and he did admit it and resigned. We've also seen a former prime minister leave in damage to his reputation, Anthony Eden, uh, in the aftermath of the Suez crisis, the Suez shambles. He left uh, supposedly during due to ill health, but... Uh, You know, there were lots of accusations that he had misled the House about the circumstances of Britain and France getting involved with that, with the the invasion around the Suez Canal. Uh, And, uh, you know, it subsequently became apparent that, yes, there was a a conspiracy that led into that process. So he very likely did mislead the House. But again, it was different circumstances, again, didn't have it. And you didn't have this kind of opposition uh, you know we'll talk about it but the way in which Boris Johnson hasn't just gone on the defensive he's gone on the offensive and big time and so have his supporters we have not seen something quite so extraordinary where a prime minister is in open warfare with his own party and with his own prime minister and with uh, parliament itself. And Emma just on that note I mean we can see from the report can't we that Johnson's behaviour since receiving a, a draft copy of the report has effectively toughened the stance that the committee wants to take. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we, we've all kind of heard that the committee was originally considering a much shorter suspension, probably something around 20 days. It's still, you know, more than enough to trigger the Recall of MPs Act, so it will probably have triggered a by-election, but nothing like the kind of enormous 90 days that they went for. And the report is is pretty clear, you know, it, it says that what they describe as his repeated acts of contempt for the committee, that he was complicit in the campaign of abuse and intimidation of the committee. I mean, you know, really strong stuff that as a result, of some of that they've taken a tougher stance and you know his behavior over the last week has been incredible you know as you say Kath at utterly on the offensive resigning presumably to avoid the potential by-election in his resignation letter refuting the committee's findings despite them at that point being confidential and provisional something that the committee's described as a very serious contempt and then since then um, attempts to discredit the committee and its members now a rebuttal where he describes the report as a charade. I mean, it, it really is, as you say, Kath, unprecedented. Sam, what did you make of it all? Um, so I think uh, Emma and Kath are right. This is a unprecedented uh, response from Parliament. But I don't think it's a surprise now that we are where we are. Um, Boris Johnson throughout his entire career has never accepted any consequences for his actions. He's never been prepared to accept wrongdoing. It doesn't surprise me at all that his reaction to this committee throughout the whole time time it's been running has been contemptuous um, and that he has got himself into a position where he's made everything much worse for himself. You know, if he'd sort of gone along with the commission, been a, accepted that he'd made mistakes, uh, perhaps accepted that he'd been reckless, he could probably have got away with less than 10 days. But everything he's done has made it worse for himself and it's just a, it's sort of a reflection of his whole career. And for me, the, the bigger question is, how did we end up with someone who had been you know, fired or investigated in every job he'd ever held getting to this position? And why did it take such a long time to get rid of him? Yeah, I mean, you can talk about Johnson and his legacy or, or whatever later. But the thing that we keep talking about recently is how it could have played so much differently. It was the repeated way he kept coming in and saying either didn't happen or... Um, yeah, I mean, he could easily have, have, have corrected the record at some yeah. point. I mean, that is one of the, the points that I think I've seen uh, Lord Wolfson make, that, you know, this is not just about the assertion in the first place. If you want to be to claim that you have been truthful, yeah. you need to come back at the first available opportunity and say, look, I was mistaken and he didn't do and, that. And there probably would have been a way through. I mean, it still would have been a massive fallout with the public, political, etc., the police action, the Sue Gray reports, but coming in and saying, look, we got it wrong. And he did do that a few times. There was one particular interview, I think, with Beth Rigby where he was incredibly contrite, but then he bounced back again into... The, the bombastic Boris Johnson that we, we see very often. But if he had said, in the first instance, I don't know, we're looking into it, which is the usual way you respond when a story breaks as the Partygate story first did. If he'd then later said, OK, actually, I've got it wrong or I don't know, uh, we need to look into it, um, but I can't answer questions here today or whatever. But it, it was... It was the manner of it. And it was, you know, it goes to this point about contempt of parliament was about obstructing parliament. So, yes, we're talking about misleading parliament, but really it was about obstructing parliament. It was so many MPs, including from his own side, saying, but we're hearing reports this happened and this happened and this happened. How can you say that didn't breach guidance? And it was the sort of closing down of those discussions that I think so infuriated MPs. I mean, this isn't a novel point, but it really is very 
congruent with this whole idea about sort of post-truth, isn't it? The sort of Trumpian approach of, well, if I just say that something is true or not true, then it it shall become certain. And that was almost what he seemed to be trying to do, that he thought that that would work if he asserted strongly enough. Yeah, and there's a long history of that. In the Blair years, we talked a lot about spin, the idea that you come up with a line. Uh, and I mean, that, you know, it goes to the heart of the report. Obviously, they, the, the committee say that he could not possibly have had assurances given it was just from his media advisors. He didn't get one from the cabinet secretary. His private secretary said, probably don't say that. Um, so why could he say he had repeated assurances? And and that goes to the heart of it. When he was coming out with those those denials, it sounded like a classic sort of media response, working out the line to take how to shut down the argument. And that might be okay for a media interview. But as we've seen, it's not okay for stopping discussions in the House of Commons when you are being held to account. And on that post-truth point, it's also down to kind of, you know, repeated attempts to redefine what language means to interpret really quite clear kind of regulations in a way that no average person would interpret them to try and kind of use phraseology that means something different to, to, you know, what an average person thinks it means. It really does play into this purposeful uh, attempt by Johnson to, to, yeah, as you say, say black is white. Sam, I mean, you've worked as a spad inside government and just listening to what Kath was saying there about lines to take and the need to respond to the media when they come up with a story or indeed MPs coming up with a story. Can you see how it, how Johnson got himself into this position from your experience? Yes, I think, you know, I was, I was obviously a, po- a policy spad. I didn't do the media stuff. They wouldn't let me anywhere near the media stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, I, just, I might have told the truth. As Kath says, his culture of spin is very well established in Westminster, creating a media line, working with friendly journalists. You know, there, there's a sort of a, a cultural environment in which this thing has been sort of allowed to, to develop over time. But Johnson was a different level because I think in his case, he didn't really have any grasp of what was the truth. And he is able to convince himself like very few other politicians. Perhaps Trump is this is one of the ways in which he is like Trump. There are big differences is that he is absolutely able to convince himself of, of, of his own version of reality. Um, so I think uh, I think what we're seeing was sort of created and manifested by a sort of long history of of of, uh, of change in Westminster, negative change towards uh, a sort of disregard for the truth and a focus on creating the line. But I think he is he is on another level, which is why we've seen a different level of reaction from from what we've seen from previous politicians and why we've seen ultimately the Commons, uh, assuming they vote for, for this report on Monday, which I think everyone thinks they will, uh, react in such a strong way eventually to, 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 to Johnson. Do you think, Sam, that, that this outcome for Johnson will have any impact on the way in which ministers approach the statements they make in front of the House? Or do you think it will be dismissed as as Johnson being exceptional um, and, and memories will soon fade. Well, I think there's a whole, there's a danger sort of more broadly of this whole period that Johnson is dismissed as exceptional. And he is unusual. He is quite extreme, but it has showed up an awful lot of constitutional issues for, for, for the country that it took so long to deal with, with the challenge that he presented, that it has exposed this sort of longer history of misleading statements and spin and uh, and so forth. And I do hope it leads to a more comprehensive conversation about the safeguards and protections that we need, both in Parliament and in politics more generally. And I hope Labour don't just sort of take the political win and not think about the wider 
consequences because eventually if we don't fix some of these holes that Johnson's exposed there'll be another Johnson in the future who'll do the same thing and not only will they maybe do the same thing they'll be able to draw on a precedent and say well it's been done that way before so it's okay for me to do it I mean Catherine is a positive out in this isn't there whether or not it sticks the principle that ministers and especially prime ministers need to tell the truth to parliament has been upheld. Yeah, and, you know, we were saying that, you've written about that many times from the get-go, that from our point of view, the most important thing was the the process that the committee were allowed to do its job, that Parliament was seeking to uphold it, even with him stopping being Prime Minister, standing down as an MP now, it was still important that they do so. And that's why it's still important that the vote goes ahead on Monday and that MPs are given a free vote. And if... It turns out that MPs reject the committee's reports and it's tight, but they decide not to endorse it. They are entitled to do so. The committee is just giving a recommendation. And again, that's why it's frustrating to see the mudslinging going on, because, you know, if Johnson's got the support there, if if he's able to make his case to MPs themselves, and if he had remained as an MP, he could be there making a case. Could he be there? I think he can. He can be in the uh, in the gallery watching, I should think. Right, but Nadine Dorries obviously has not stood down, so can be there making the case. But but that's the point. They have an opportunity. He is ultimately being judged by his fellow MPs. He, it's not just the committee. The committee were making a report. So yeah, the process has been very important for many people. Obviously, the outcome is the the most important part. But I think for us, it's the journey. Emma, with all this row about Johnson and. Uh, sort of tied up with it, his resignation honours, which came out on Friday, which have led to the prospect of future by-elections. What are the implications of, of all this for Rishi Sunak? It shows, first of all, that Boris Johnson's still able to cause problems for Sunak. I think we all knew that. By-elections are obviously a, a nightmare for Sunak at the moment. And I think that Johnson does still have perhaps fewer than he used to have, but still a few vocal supporters that have the potential to make life difficult for Sunak, like for the time being, at least, Nadine Doris. I think it makes it harder to draw a line under Partygate, something that Sunak obviously wants to move on from. And I think it creates uh, you know, more difficult decisions for him. Should he block Johnson from standing to be an MP again? You know, Johnson strongly implied he'll he'll give it a go if he gets the opportunity. But Sunak does have the chance to to block that. So will he do that? It's another difficult thing for him to face. I mean, on the other hand, I think most Conservatives MPs at this point, even lots of those who might have once supported Johnson, probably want to move on at this point, particularly after the way that Johnson has has responded and behaved over the last week. But I don't want to make the this only matters in SW1 argument because obviously this does matter to lots of people and I think people feel really strongly about decision makers playing by the same rules as, as other people do but and I think it was Paul Wall was writing this earlier this week lots of ordinary people at the moment I think are you know really concerned with things like whether they're going to be able to afford their mortgages for much longer and I think they're a lot more concerned about that than they are the kind of latest controversy around Boris Johnson so I think if we're thinking about you know the kind of the problems that Sunak is facing Boris Johnson remains amongst them but I think there are, you know, far, far bigger dangers on the horizon for CNAC. That's a really good point, Emma. And Sam, I mean, where does this leave the Conservative Party? <laughs> I mean, I completely agree with Emma. They're in an enormous mess, but this isn't, I don't think, the main reason they're in an enormous mess. You know, you look at what's happened to mortgages this week. You look at what we're going to come on and talk about the NHS later and the sort of record levels of waiting lists. These are the things that people will vote on and we can see in polls are their biggest concerns. I think what the sort of Johnson Circus 
continuing does do is take time away from any ability Sunak has to reset the agenda. We're still talking about this. We will be talking about this next week. Yeah, it will, there'll be by-elections that will that will sort of excite the lobby for the next few months. Then Nadine Doris, whatever the hell she will do in that circus. And all of that means that Sunak can't, even if he were able to fix some of these big policy problems, can't focus attention on that, can't focus attention on the narrative he wants, which is that you know, he's a much more sort of stable and sober prime minister. So I, I think all it does is just, is just limit the time even more before the next election that the Conservatives have to do any type of reset and make it something that was very unlikely banishing in the unlikely. Let's move briefly on to the COVID inquiry, which has held its first public evidence session. Emma, what happened this week? So, you know, as you say, Hannah, it's the first time that we've actually had a public hearing uh, for the COVID inquiry, although it's worth saying, I mean, lots of the kind of the press have said, you know, it's finally beginning. Actually, the COVID inquiry has been going on for what, about a year now, kind of meticulous evidence gathering, taking kind of expert advice, thinking about the kind of questions they're going to be asking in public hearings. So this is the kind of culmination of a lot of um, existing work. I mean, what that looked like this week is, you know, an opening statement from Baroness Hallett, the chair, kind of setting out um, her view of the inquiry, a video capturing some of the, you know, really painful testimony from families that that lost family members during the pandemic, and then opening statements from from lawyers and from core participants, people who have a kind of particular interest in in this stage of the inquiry. I think we learned a few things this week. I mean, first of all, I think as you'd expect for the opening, there was a real focus on the kind of the raw pain that, that, that some people obviously continue to feel and how important the inquiry is for them in understanding what had happened and thinking about how we can reflect and, and, and learn from it. When Baroness Hallett was kind of uh, listening to the video and, and talking about some people's experiences you know she was visibly moved it clearly is a kind of priority for her to make sure that that voice is heard I think you know we also heard Hugo Keith Casey's opening statement um he's acting for the inquiry and I think in that we started to see some of the lines of investigation um, that the inquiry are likely to pursue so you know really getting into the idea that we weren't well prepared and comparatively we were not well prepared compared to others so we're starting to see what some of that argumentation is going to look like and Kath we saw a as part of that, those opening statements and so on, we saw a remarkably complicated organogram, mm. uh, which was an organ- organisation chart of the UK's pre-pandemic preparedness. Um, I mean, I think we pride ourselves here at the RFG on clear infographics, but I'm not sure that much could have been done with that one. Yeah, I mean, we do have an old, Emma will know this well, what we call the policy brain, but which is basically trying to map the different factors that go into policy making, and that was equivalent um, of a, a complete mess. I mean, I'm sympathetic. They were trying to map all the different players involved in decision making at the centre of government. And I remember there was a, a series of, of graphics that we did trying to map that decision making at the different stages. And we had similar uh, troubles, but ended up going with something that I think it makes a point, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, the, the complexity of it. It does. But but some people have been arguing that it it risks kind of confusing accountability lines of, of who's in charge. Uh, I think there's probably not so much of a risk of that because um, fundamentally, you know, it, it ministers are going to be the people in the hot seats for a lot of what the, the final decisions were. And similarly, you know, senior advisors in terms of the advice that they were giving. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure that it, it, it was uh, sort of great for helping the public understand uh, the decision making process. 
see our explainer for that. Uh, but it, it might have been important for, as Emma says, understanding the lines of inquiry and what it is that the inquiry is trying to uncover. And Emma, I noticed that Lord Bethel, who was a Lord's Health Minister during the pandemic, tweeted in response to seeing this chart that its complexity justified the use of WhatsApp by ministers during the pandemic. Do we agree with that? I don't think so. I mean, I think the point they were trying to get across with that organogram, as as Kath says, was just how kind of complex uh, the decision-making process was uh, and that the accountability arrangements around preparedness were. So I think probably the last thing that implies is uh, taking us to, uh, you know, more kind of informal uh, and harder to to scrutinise decision-making over over WhatsApp. I think it was actually trying to take us to entirely the opposite conclusion. Yeah, and and actually it, it shows up what the problems of WhatsApp are because if you look at that you will think well these were the most senior people in that WhatsApp group so therefore you know that group was clearly making the decision there's these other WhatsApp groups but they must have been ignored or or whatever and and it just implies that actually all those organizations that should have been playing a part in the decision making might have been left out of the process entirely because they were relying on WhatsApp. I think that's going to be a tension throughout that we still don't really understand exactly how much was done by WhatsApp and, and you know, we don't know which bits were a sort of the good part of it and w- which parts were the bad. Yeah, and I think we'll start to get more into that, I think, in a second, because this module is obviously focusing on like how prepared we were, how resilient we are. But the next module is looking at kind of central government decision making. And I think that's where we will really start to get into, you know, how were formal channels utilised versus informal channels? Was that balance right? What are the downsides? Um, so, yeah, lots more to come on WhatsApp, I expect. But we do expect to see some big names before the committee quite soon, Emma. We do. So this week was core participants and kind of expert witnesses. But the witness list for next week has actually just been published and it looks like it's going to be very lively. Um, so on Monday, we've got David Cameron, the former prime minister, and Chris Wormel the Permanent Secretary at Department for Health and Social Care. Then on Tuesday, George Osborne, former Chancellor, and Oliver Letwin, who was the Minister for Government Policy at the time period they're going to be scrutinising. On Wednesday, Jeremy Hunt, the current Chancellor, but at the time Secretary of State for Health, at the time that they're going to be kind of questioning him about, and Oliver Dowden, um, who's been questioned about some of his Cabinet Office roles. And then finally on Thursday, we've got Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. So it's going to be, uh, yeah, definitely the kind of biggest week yet for the public inquiry. So presumably they're looking in particular at the coalition years um, and at some point we'll move to the Theresa May years or is yeah. it not? Yeah. I think we will we'll move through the kind of full political period, given the scope of the terms of reference. I mean, I think it will be interesting to see where they focus next week. We know they're going to be looking at, you know, the kind of decision making that Cameron and Osborne kind of took on emergency response planning. Did we focus too much on influenza rather than other novel forms of disease? You know, was it reasonable how little we planned for lockdown? But I think the big question is how far does next week get into some of the kind of more political decision making? There's been, you know, lots of chatter about how wanting to get into austerity and the impact of the decision making on austerity on our ability to prepare for a pandemic weather and we'll get into this in the next section but whether you know it, that was a contributor to, to us running hospitals far too hot so I think that balance between you know core emergency preparation and political decision making will be a really interesting trade-off next week. And Sam, how significant do you expect the inquiry to be in the run-up to the next election? So this is all giving me flashbacks to Chilcot, because my dad was on the Chilcot inquiry, and we spent 
seven years with him on this inquiry, toiling away, producing what I am biased, I think is a sort of very insightful report with, with lots of sort of great analysis. But by the, but I, think the I think it was the month that it was released, Brexit happened and that everyone had moved on and it got you know, remarkably little coverage given how massive the Iraq war was um, when, it, when it happened. And I am a bit worried that the timescale and the, the sort of effort going into this inquiry is going to be such over such a long period that by the time we get the, the sort of analysis, um, I worry that things will have moved on and I, and I sort of wonder if there was a way institutionally to speed these things up a bit. But that being said, you know, the stuff that we're going to hear over the coming weeks will certainly play into some of the critiques that Labour will want to make of the last 13 years of government. You know, as Emma said, we might hear a bit about austerity and, of course, uh, various elements of the government's mishandling of COVID. But I kind of think that you know, already the public have moved on a bit from, from COVID and are worrying about other things. So, yeah, the speed is, 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 is making me nervous. I kind of agree on the speed, but I think the one other interesting thing that we we learned uh, in Baroness Hallett's opening statement was that, you know, she confirmed they aren't going for one big final report. Of course, there will be, you know, a final report in 2026, 2027, but they're actually going for some like really chunky interim reports. So at the end of the preparedness module, the one they're doing at the moment, they'll publish a report that's with recommendations. I think that's going to be very early next year. Uh, they'll do the same on the kind of political and central government decision making module, also expecting to publish findings and recommendations from that next year. Now, I think that timing is really interesting because it means, you know, they're going to publish two of, in some ways, the most political um, sets of findings in what we're expecting to be general election year. Um, Any other public inquiry, I think you would wonder whether they'll hold off, but I think Baroness Hallett has been pretty clear that she is not going to be cowed by what politicians might prefer. So I think she will push ahead no matter what. The question is, is that a positive in that it gives an opportunity to land some of those messages and recommendations at a time that kind of political interest is really acute? Or is the danger kind of in the other direction that actually all the energy is around the general election and it means actually the recommendations kind of fade into the background? And I think that's something that the inquiry is going to have to grapple with head on if they are determined, which seems like a good thing, given the points that you've made on timing, Sam, if they are determined to publish next year, then how do they do so in a way that makes you know those recommendations most likely to actually lead to change quickly? So let's take a closer look at an organisation that will feature prominently in the COVID inquiry, and that is, of course, the NHS, because the health service is not in a good place right now. Satisfaction is at an all-time low, and the stats from A&E response times to waiting lists for operations and the data on hospitals are frankly terrible. And the government's response has been more money and more staff, but there has been no reverse in hospital performance. So what's going on and can it be fixed? Well, that's the focus of a new report jointly written by Sam, who's joined us here today, and by Rachel Wolfe from Public First and the author of the 2019 Conservative Manifesto. Sam, back in January, you wrote a piece which explored whether the NHS was in a death spiral. Are you any less gloomy now? I'm still pretty gloomy, to be honest. I think that the one thing that doing this report has has made me feel is that 
there are there are ways of resolving this 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 sort of crisis not quickly not overnight but there are things that you could do to get us back to where we were a decade ago when public satisfaction was at an all-time high and waiting lists had been almost eliminated but to do that you'd have to focus on very different things to the ones that politicians have traditionally liked to focus on uh, certainly over the last few years as you said we've seen this big increase in money since the pandemic and also in staffing 16% more junior doctors 11% more nurses and I think probably most of the public don't realize that that that's happened um, they think some sort of spending's been cut off there has been an increase in spending but so many of our kind of traditional uh, problem areas um, that were there before the pandemic have become sort of exacerbated and a system that was struggling with capacity beforehand has just got knocked over. And unless we deal with those sort of core root causes of capacity, uh, we're not going to be able to get uh, back to where we should be. And the things that we identified in the report, the first was capital investments. And this is a long term problem. The UK has consistently over decades underinvested in the infrastructure around the health service. So we spend a lot on doctors and nurses. We spend more on staff than most countries, but we've spent much less on building hospitals, equipment, uh, technology. So that means that your staff that you employ are inevitably going to be less productive because they're using uh, rubbish old computers. They're you know running around hospitals that are crumbling, trying to make wards work when there aren't enough beds in them. Uh, so that's that. That's sort of problem one. Problem two is that the staff that we're bringing in are, are, are often very junior staff and we're losing a lot of very senior staff at the moment. So we're losing a lot of ward manager type nurses. We're losing consultants uh, either completely or, or they're going part time. So even though you've got this sort of big increase in staffing, you're losing a lot of experience, which makes that capacity problem worse because you don't have the people around who can sort of manage these highly constrained uh, systems who have the experience to do that and then the final problem is sort of again a, a sort of historic one which is we're just catastrophically undermanaged in the NHS there's a sort of widespread view that there's lots of fat cat managers sitting around the NHS which politicians love to play into but the reality is we spend less than half the OECD average on management and admin um, and that means that you have uh, you know again Hospital, lots of hospital staff that are being used in very unproductive ways because there's nobody, well, not enough people properly coordinating them. And the people that are doing that coordination are too inexperienced and don't have the necessary levers, which have been increasingly sucked into the centre since the Lansley reforms um, as well. So like, going back to your initial question, there are fixes here. It doesn't need to deteriorate forever. But at the moment, politicians, you know, from the government, but also from the Labour Party are not talking about these core problems. So what we were hoping to do with this report is to help shift the election debate away from should we have more nurses, more doctors in an ever increasing cycle? Or do we do we tackle these root causes? Emma, can you see that debate shifting? Can you see any appetite from Conservatives or the the Labour Party to have this slightly more nuanced debate? Well, I mean, I think so far we've seen, you know, lots of pledges around NHS performance like from both Sunak and Starmer, kind of a desire to to focus on that. The debate has kind of emphasised words like innovation and renewal. Labour have talked quite a lot about prevention, but I don't think, you know, either party has really got close to grappling with the kind of challenges and questions that Sam outlines. You know, Labour have already talked about wanting to undertake the biggest expansion of NHS training in history, more nurses, more doctors. They've talked about how it's going to be funded because obviously they're they're very worried about talking about 
any kind of uh, spending of money. But I think as Sam and Rachel set out so well in the report, there are just other questions that need to be answered that aren't to do with increasing the numbers of doctors and nurses. How do we, you know, keep more senior experienced staff in place? How can we increase management rather than clinical capacity? We hear lots about more doctors and nurses, but a lot less about that management question. And and then there's so much focus on on people and look, understandably so, but but what about capital investment? The NHS estate is in a terrible state and that needs attention too. So I don't think you know we've seen anything from from either of the major parties yet that fills me with hope that they're focusing on the the really the really tricky questions yet. Kath, Boris Johnson did, to his credit, sort of identify 40 new hospitals being, you know, that's like that's a capital investment. Uh, we haven't seen much sign of it. Mm. Um, but that was him saying, you know, this isn't just about people. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's a bit of a nuanced one, isn't it? Because it was yet another example of the sort of bombastic Boris Johnson, which is claim something big. He loved infrastructure stuff. You know, he was always for building bridges or, or whatever, um, tunnels. Um, but, you know, obviously, as people started to probe it, it wasn't 40 new hospitals. It was existing programs that were being allocated into this. Uh, it was some new estate. And, and uh, yeah, and, you know, as far as we can tell, a lot of it's got still caught up in, in all sorts of um, troubles. So, yes, perhaps it's that vision, but it kind of goes to the point that Emma was was just talking about here. There is always a tension between the politicians wanting something eye-grabbing and they think they have to go bolder and and fresher and say something different and do something different uh, rather than actually get into the weeds and get into the, the real problems, especially if the solutions are something that, that doesn't involve politicians or does involve politicians getting out of the way. That's always where they find it more difficult to, to deal with it. And I think that creates a bit of a false narrative with the public as well, that they think you can only fix things with bold claims of, of you know, big projects rather than uh, doing the hard work, even if it takes time. Sam, in the run-up to the next election, I feel that's a phrase we're going to be increasingly using <laughs> on every podcast over the next year. What questions do you think politicians should be asked about the NHS? to get to the bottom of their approach. Right. So, I mean, I think they should be asked essentially about these these core these core issues that we've uncovered. So what are you going to do about capital underinvestment? Um, and I think beds is a really critical point here. There is no doubt that we need a lot more beds in our system. And I think this COVID inquiry, I suspect the COVID inquiry will look at this point quite a lot in terms of, you know, we were just had far fewer beds in other countries and that meant we they were very quickly filled during when when covid hit we're very unresilient because of it it's causing huge problems at the moment but there's nobody who wants to sort of acknowledge that everyone wants to sort of pretend that there's a technological solution about to emerge or through prevention we can somehow fix the fact that we have a, a, an increasingly aging population we already don't have enough beds so where is the capacity going to it's going to come from is a is, 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 is a critical one what are you going to do about pay you know it is is very clear that doctor pay in particular more more so than nurses pay has been cut a lot over the last 13 14 years in real terms and that has left us with a lot of senior people leaving the profession the government has continued to, to stay in industrial dispute with the doctors would Labour do anything different? Are the government serious about trying to, to end that industrial dispute? What do they do beyond that to, to boost retention? And then there's these sort of bigger questions about management and also how you use managers, what the role of the centre of the NHS is 
NHS England, which was created under the Lansley reforms, is that working? Uh, are we setting the right kinds of targets? How should we fund and pay for the NHS through sort of payment by results or things like that? So there are sort of lots of more detailed questions about the, the sort of structure of the system. As Kath said, we don't we don't focus on because they they are just a bit more complicated and a bit more nitty gritty. But we have to get into that if we're going to solve the problem. And Emma. What culpability do you think there is amongst the media for not wanting to get into this sort of deeper analytical approach that we've taken? They tend to want to focus on the sort of the simple headline stuff too. Do they also bear some responsibility if politicians don't want to get into this detail because the media can't be bothered to get into it either? I mean, I think there's definitely, you know, a responsibility there to try and ask the most kind of pertinent questions possible about the state of some of our kind of key institutions, and in this case, particularly the NHS. Um, so there's, you know, there's definitely some responsibility there. But honestly, I, I do place kind of more emphasis on on the politicians. They are the ones that are constructing plans for the NHS. Labour have made it one of their core missions. And I think kind of responsibility sits there to really try and grapple with some of the difficult kind of nitty gritty problems that are driving the kind of performance challenges that we're seeing. Um, And I think there is an opportunity to do that. You know, the election is coming up soon, but actually policy development for both parties ahead of manifestos is still underway. There are still lots of opportunities there to actually get some of this stuff right and really try and engage and build a policy platform that has a chance of success um, once the general election takes place. Yeah, and I mean, it's also a question for the civil service. You mentioned Chris Wormald is, is going to be appearing next week. And and actually, you know, somebody who's been in the Department for Health and Social Care for quite a time now as a permanent secretary, and yet wasn't, unlike some other figures, front and centre um, in the COVID inquiry, you know, wasn't um, sort of leading the way, as we saw with the chief medical officer and uh, government chief scientific advisor, Chris Whitty, Patrick Vallance. So hearing him talk about the resilience of the department, you know, that Sam just talked about, the sort of the weirdness of that relationship of NHS hospitals, NHS England, uh, and then the departments. It's always something that's difficult for ministers to get to grips with when you have such different levers across different departments and um, DHSC is one in particular where a lot of the levers are outside of the department and yet you know the department is really listened to is really important and for them as well going into an election year whatever the result of the election it's a good time to take stock and to be thinking about what's working so hopefully they are also reading the report. And I'm sure Sam stands ready to uh, discuss it with anyone who wants to. So that's it for today. Thank you for listening at home and thank you to Emma Norris, Kath Haddon and Sam Friedman. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms and be sure to subscribe and give us a good review. Please don't call for us to be suspended. Check out Sam's NHS paper on our website and all our essential explainers on the Cabled Inquiry, the Privileges Committee and how people are appointed to the House of Lords. Check out our sister channel, IFG Events, where you'll be able to find recordings of some great events we held this week on special advisors and the use of WhatsApp in government. And do register for next Tuesday's IFG event. Emma will be in conversation with Chris Heaton-Harris, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, here at the IFG. So it's goodbye from us for now, and apparently from Boris Johnson. Have a great weekend, everyone.